Jesus, our Lord and Savior, counsels us to love truth, to live skillfully, to judge rightly, to lead holy lives. He teaches us to pursue godly affections, to guard and nurture our hearts, to orient our lives toward eternity. If we could travel back in time and journey to the region of Galilee, and there we would see Jesus teaching along the lake and a gathering of people around Him. And we came up to that gathering and we joined it and listened in to what He was saying and it listened into His teaching. We would expect Him to teach about these kinds of things. To teach on such matters of the heart. And if you have at least a general knowledge of the Gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly ministry, you would also expect that He would teach about our relationship with material possessions. Judging from the sheer volume of material that's recorded in the Gospels, it is obvious that our spiritual well-being depends on some significant measure to our relationship with money. Many Christians bristle whenever the topic of money is brought up in the church. They don't like it. There's reasons for that. They might articulate them. They might not, but they just don't like it. They don't want to hear about that on Sunday morning. And we know and we recognize as a church that there are many pastors who preach about money in ways that are heretical in ways that twist Scripture, in ways that bring disrepute to Jesus Christ. And we want nothing to do with that as a church. Yet it is equally true that many congregants resist the topic of money because they have just not sat at Jesus' feet long enough. They haven't come to recognize that if you're going to get around Jesus and hear His teaching, He's going to teach you about material possessions. It's a significant part of His instruction to us. If you are a Spirit-born follower of Christ, if you've been united by faith to His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, you know that your relationship to material possessions is a crucial aspect of your relationship with Christ. You recognize this. You're at peace with this. In fact, I would suspect that on some level you are growing and rejoicing in this realization. This radical, transformational way of thinking about this world. The teaching of Jesus on material wealth is counsel that we should indeed welcome for the good of our own souls. This transformational counsel is intended to purify our hearts. It's intended to form us into the image of Christ. And there is no area that we say is off limits to the Lordship of Christ. And this is one of those areas that we can rejoice to demonstrate that. To ask God what He thinks and how is it that He would counsel us to live our lives and relate to these things. This counsel takes, the Scriptures and Jesus' teaching, it really takes a surgical knife to an idol which so easily wraps itself around our hearts. And when I submit to such a surgery, it may hurt. 
It may not be something sometimes I want to think about, but I'm thankful that the idol's being killed. It's being cut out. It's being dealt with. And as we deal with the idolatries of wealth, we are dealing with our relationship with Jesus Christ Himself. So it's not an unwelcome topic. His counsel strikes at this idol and we welcome it. And let's admit it. We love money. The word love is to be defined, of course, but we love it. I would suspect that every single person here in this room today wants more of it. You really wish you had some more. You like what it does. You like the securities that it brings. We like what we can purchase and consume. Now, it's not inherently evil to gain wealth, to spend wealth, to enjoy wealth. Indeed, Scripture would direct us in these ways. But we are morally dull if we do not realize money's idolatrous powers. And we are fools if we do not actively arm ourselves with the counsel of God to relate to material wealth in redemptive ways. This is an aspect of our salvation. This is an aspect of the outworking of our salvation in Christ. So to this end, I invite you to journey with me through a brief series of sermons investigating Jesus' teaching regarding material wealth. In a sense, we began it last week a mention of Jesus' statement that it's more blessed to give than to receive, and His example, though He was rich, for our sakes He became poor. But we look today at the content of that teaching with this sermon, and we find in Luke chapter 12 some direct instruction there. And Let's turn there. Let's join that crowd circled around Jesus and hearing His teaching, and let's join in in the middle of a series of instructions and to zero in on this discussion here as he calls us in this section to become rich toward God and to think rightly about material possessions. All of it comes about in a rather interesting way. We read in Luke 12, 13, where someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You say, what an obnoxious guy, right? Well, Not so much. The rabbis were commonly asked to arbitrate disputes. They knew God's Word. God's law ruled the Israelites. And so who better to ask than a rabbi who knew God's law and could say this is the the person in the right, this is the person in the wrong. Maybe there was some section of Scripture or some statement that we are just not thinking about. And so we'll bring it to the rabbi who spends his life interpreting the law of God. And that seems to be what this man is doing. In this case, a relative has died. And this man believes that his brother is unjustly refusing to release his fair share of the inheritance. So Jesus is a teacher of righteousness. The man reasons, Jesus will want to see justice served here, and so I will appeal to him, Master, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He doesn't get quite what he thought he was going to get from Jesus, does he? Verse 14. But Jesus said to this man, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? 
man is a rather stiff address. It's not a mean statement. It's maybe something like a cold sir, but it's certainly not warm. Respectful, but not inviting. Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus is saying, you assume I should decide this matter for you. This is not my God-given task, and I'm not going to do it. Now, I ask you a question. When have you ever seen Jesus back away from a dispute that mattered? Maybe when there was a question put to him and he said nothing, but that was because it pertained to him personally and what he was doing. He never backs away from things that matter. But he backs away here from this discussion and says, I'm not going to deal with this. This is not important. Now the brother in question may be a greedy, manipulative scoundrel. We don't know. But Jesus refuses to even discuss the dispute with this man. He considered it all. Why? Because he detects the man is motivated by the same greed that he's condemning in his brother. The man is saying, I have not gained as much free money as my brother has. And that upsets me. So Jesus, you have power, you have authority, you could step in here and render a judgment and I could get more of that money that he has. He's scrapping with his brother over free money because he believes life will be better if he can have more of it. He's not content with what he has. And he sees that his brother stands between him and a better life. Which is precisely why Jesus now says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. I doubt that made the man real happy, but Jesus takes this to move into a discussion about coveting, wanting, longing for money, particularly here, the word can be used translated either greed or covetousness depending on the context but here probably rightly translated covetousness in that it wants what someone else has it's unsettled that my life is not as good as it could be because i don't have what he or she has jesus says guard your heart from that kind of thinking guard it Wanting to grasp material wealth out of someone else's hands is evil. It's not wrong to earn money by giving someone something they need, our time or a product or something. It's, it's right for us to pay money to get something from someone else. But even in lawful business transactions, we can seek profit at others' expense. Grasping covetously to get as much out of them for ourselves as we are able. What runs us is wanting more. And Jesus says, guard your heart against that. Be content with what you have now and always. Again, not wrong to gain wealth, not wrong to bring it in, but guard your heart against coveting. 
Covetousness is wrong because, as verse 15 continues, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that's what covetousness blinds us to see. Covetousness, that that heart attitude that wants more, is not content with what we have, is jealous that someone else has it. What drives that is this sense that my life consists in what I have. Material possessions cannot make you happier. There's a lie there that is constantly perpetuated in our culture. Having more will make you happier. It will not. It cannot. It's not to say that wealth cannot be enjoyed, but it is not going to bring peace to your soul and bring genuine joy in and of itself. It can't do that. It cannot satisfy the soul It cannot make you more valuable in God's eyes. It cannot make you more holy. It cannot fit you for the kingdom of God. And we know this, don't we? It's so obvious to us as we look objectively at others. But we see there in our mind's eye this beautiful mansion. Manicured lawns. Everything inside is perfect and expensive. And there's this family eating at the table. A luxurious meal, but nobody talks. Divorce is hovering in the air. There's bitterness between these family members. They don't want to be here. They hate everything about one another. There's tension. There's disruption. There's ugliness. Everything in this meal is hated. And across the street, a poor family gathers in this dilapidated house. There's hanging from the ceiling a cord with a naked light bulb over their dining room table. Their food is very simple, but there's joy. There's love between family members. There's laughter. There's wonder in this scene. And we look at it and we say, Does your life consist in your material possessions? And we say it's ridiculous. Where do you want to live? Where do you want to be? Who's happy? It's not those with the possessions. It's those who possess something in their heart that money can never buy. We know this. It's obvious. But what happens is we get clouded to these realities when we apply it to our own lives. And while we would stand here and say, let me eat with the poor family. Let me have what they have. I want nothing to do with being over here with this wealth. Even though we can see that as it's someone else when it comes to our own life, we somehow still think more is going to make me happier. More money, more possessions, that's what life's about. It's not, says Jesus. Get this right. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. That's not what defines you. That's not what provides anything necessary for you. If your life focus is to acquire more stuff, you're deluded. And Jesus is coming alongside here in his teaching and in his counsel and saying, let me help you. Guard your heart against covetousness it's killing you 
He won't even answer this man. He won't deal with the situation, but uses the example to say, this is, a, this is an evil that we must resist. And he told them, verse 16, then to illustrate the parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? What we call a good problem. And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. So, here's a man. Now, Jesus, connecting to what this other man had said to him, the question he'd asked, realizing the issue is covetousness, he draws this story out and talks about this man. Storing grain was the ancient equivalent of putting money in the bank. Nothing wrong with that. Through honest, hard work and the blessing of God upon his farm, the man becomes wealthy. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem comes at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's his plan. He has all the money he will ever need for food, shelter, clothing, and entertainment. It's all there. Banked. So why work any longer? There's no need. He's living for these things. He has all that he's ever going to need to consume. So why work any longer? He's a self-made man who reasons as if he is the captain of his fate. I will do this. I will do that. The I continues to stand out here through his words. This is the reasoning of one who thinks life consists in the abundance of one's possessions. I've got it made. I've got life by the tail. But the next two words come crashing headlong into his dream world, and they shred it to pieces. But God... God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You were preparing for a long life of ease, but you're done. Your life is over. You're going to leave your wealth behind with no idea who will get it or what they will do with it. It's not evil to retire from farming. The problem was retiring to a life of self-congratulatory ease under the foolish delusion that life consists in the abundance of one's possessions. This man thought he was in heaven. That's the delusion. That kind of thinking, says Jesus, is moronic, morally speaking. It is stupid to live your days accumulating temporal riches as an end in themselves while ignoring the pursuit of eternal reward. So, here's what we should take away. Verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is one who's on a crash course with reality. This is foolish foolish thinking. What we should do, clearly, verse 21, is to become rich toward God. 
You know, there's a day coming when God will say, your time is up. On that day, we will leave everything behind. Do you imagine on your deathbed, as you know life is slipping away and you're about to enter into eternity, do you imagine you're going to sit there and, wonder, and think about all the things you possess? Is that what your mind's going to think about? Do you imagine in that scene wishing you had purchased more stuff? Clearly not. We come into this world naked and that's how we're going to leave it and we all know it. The only wealth that will matter on that day is the wealth of our relationship with the Lord. Are you living a life that is fitting you to enter eternity as a wealthy man, woman, child? Is that how you're living your life? If you're not, then you're pouring everything into a temporal, short-term project at the expense of the eternal project. That's what Jesus says. Let's get our lives aligned to what's right, he counsels us. Guard your heart against covetousness. Your life does not consist in your possessions. Pursue wealth with God. That's thinking straight. And how should we respond to this truth? We should become rich toward God. We should, secondly, I think as he leads in verse 22, invest treasure in heaven. Here's our response. Verse 22, he said to his disciples, therefore, you see the therefore, on the basis of this teaching, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. There's the right response to this understanding. Jesus is not saying that it's wrong to provide for ourselves physically. The Bible condemns laziness, apathy, carelessness, and failing to provide for our own necessities. Jesus is saying we should not worry, we should not fret, or be filled with anxiety about finances. Here's the rationale, verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. It links to what? It links to that statement. Life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. Positively, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. So to live is much more than merely possessing things. Being rich toward God means trusting Him to provide and living as if life was bigger than the material possessions that we amass. God gave you life and a body. He will provide food and clothing sufficient to sustain that life and that body. As He sees fit, as is necessary, you can trust Him. So Jesus draws an illustration from nature. As He says in verse 24, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? Ravens don't fret or worry. Anxiety doesn't put a single worm in their mouths and worry never built their nests. What is true of the lesser is certainly to be considered true of the greater. God provides for the birds. Do you imagine He is less motivated to care for you? 
And for those that are studying the doctrine of providence in our adult class, that says a little bit about what we are considering today, doesn't it? He feeds the birds. God's providential care for them is evident in this text. He cares for the birds. What do you think He's going to do for the creature made in His own image? Anxiety over money reveals materialistic idolatry and a distrust in God. Let's work that out of our hearts, says Jesus. He offers another example at verse 25. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest. This single hour to the span of life is probably the right sense of it. Your translation may say something a bit differently. It's a figure of speech that's difficult to get the precise uh, wording, but the idea is very obvious. When we die, we can't look at our watch and say, you know what, I think I'm going to extend this five minutes. I want to hang on a little bit longer. We can't do that. If we cannot do that, says Jesus, do you imagine that by worry you can do anything else? What matters more than extending the length of your life just by a short bit? But you can't do that with worry. You don't have the power to pull that off. Do you consider you're going to really get anything done by being anxious about money? Worry is absolutely futile. Anxiety accomplishes nothing. Another example, verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? A little context in the setting there in Israel in the summer months with some rain. The flowers would bloom, the beauty of the bud would come out, and then the sun would often just scorch those flowers, and people would gather the dead flowers and the dead grass that had dried up in the sun's heat and would burn it in a clay oven and bake bread on it. So you think of something that's used that way. It just has one day, really, where it shows up and the flower uh, comes out and people take it and use it and burn it. There's beauty in those flowers. God is clothing the flowers of the field with such splendor and beauty. Is He not going to care for you? Really? He wonderfully adorns the flora of the field. He'll care for you. Now, you notice it again. Oh, you have little faith. That's what it really comes down to. It's not God not caring for us. We're not anxious because we're, we've got to be anxious to stir God to do something. The issue is that we don't believe Him. And He, arguing from nature, says, listen, what you're thinking here is irrational. God cares for the birds. He clothes the flowers of the field. You're made in His image. He's going to take care of you. You can trust it. And worry isn't going to accomplish anything at all. And so, verse 29, do not seek 
what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Oh, you of little faith. He knows that you need them. Again, Jesus is not arguing against industry and hard work. Not at all. It would be to misread Him, to think that. But He's arguing against the kind of worry that fails to trust His provision and the kind of worry that anxiously seeks after material possessions. So there's the anxiety that says, I don't think we're going to make it. I'm not going to have enough. Everything's going to cave in. That's an anxiety that Jesus is saying is irrational. Set it aside. Don't let your heart be corrupted by that kind of anxiety. But there's the other anxiety, different, somewhat different, that is, I've got to get more. I'm anxiously going after more things because I believe those possessions give me real life. Set that aside as well. This is how the nations live. This is how pagans live who know not God. <clears throat> we can trust Him to, to, to provide and we should rest in what He has provided. The pagans have no such confidence in God. No such confidence that He will act in love, that He is good, that He is trustworthy. They don't know that. You do. You know better. So rather than worry, instead of obsessing about the accumulation of material resources, verse 31, seek His kingdom and these things will be added to you. Why will they be added to you? Because your God cares for you. It's demonstrable just by looking at nature itself. God cares for what He made. He preserves His creation. He cares for you. Be rich toward God by pursuing His kingdom. Focus there. And so, says Jesus to His followers, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Beautiful statement of compatibilism there for those that are keeping score. But go after the kingdom. God's already given it to you. It's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And as we pursue that, as we pursue God, His rule, and His future promises, we can know that these things will be added to us as necessary. And I ask you today, do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you placed your trust in His saving grace for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you understand what He did in dying on the cross and rising from the grave to give you life? If you can say, I know Christ is my Savior, I want you to meditate on this. Think about this. Let's together join our minds on this point. God is pleased to make us a citizen of His kingdom. God is pleased to make us kingdom citizens. It's His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That means we are eternally rich. Rich beyond anything this world can provide. He is giving you His kingdom. What are you saying 
if you're anxiously living to accumulate wealth. He's giving you His kingdom. Do you imagine that He'll not supply your way? Do you imagine that as you anxiously, aggressively go after wealth as if it was your life, that you are in some way honoring God in that? We're saying that His kingdom doesn't matter that there's more important things to pursue. And so, verse 33, he continues, sell your possessions and give to the needy. He's not saying sell everything that you have. Everyone who hears him is to sell everything that they have and to give it to the needy. That would be to misunderstand what he's saying and conflict with the rest of Scripture. He's not coaching us to become dependent on welfare or to become wards of the state in one afternoon. But if we get the sense of what he's saying, I think on some level it may be hyperbole. On another level we could take it and just say, he's just saying sell some of your possessions and give it to the poor. But at any rate, however we take his statement here, it's meant to be provocative, but what he's saying is feel free to give away material possessions to others. Oh, you know what? I've liberated you so that you can do that without anxiety. You can give away freely because you know I have you covered. It's my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You're able to give because you know I'm, back, I'm behind you. I'm supporting you. I'm there with you. So feel free to give your possessions away. Give them freely. Use your wealth to benefit the needy. Do not hoard your wealth. Invest it in others. Give free of all anxiety that your giving will diminish your life. It won't diminish your life. In fact, the opposite's going to happen. So sell possessions. Give things away. It's a different world. They didn't write checks. But you get the point. Create wealth to give it away, trusting that I will provide and fill you with joy. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, verse 33, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. The money belts of heaven never wear out. The wealth deposited there is never depleted. It is never stolen. It is not susceptible like the wealth of this world to ruin. They would store sometimes their wealth in clothing and the moth would eat it. Not so with this kind of treasure. Do we grasp this? It, for those that know the Bible, this is familiar territory, but let's think about this carefully. Have we caught what Jesus is saying here? I, I want to read this verse in faith. I want to believe it. I want to hear what Jesus is teaching, take it for what He's really saying, and bank on it. I'm trusting Jesus for my eternal future. I want to hear Him on this and hear what He's really saying and believe it. He says that we can store treasure in the heavens. Jesus is saying that by giving our wealth away down here, we can deposit it in eternity. 
Alcorn catches this so well when he says, whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. It's a way of paraphrasing what Jesus is saying. What I leave behind will be nailed down here. What I send on ahead will meet me in an eternal realm. Jesus is not anxious to make us poor. He's anxious to see us become eternally rich. Set your affections on material, temporal possessions and you are absolutely guaranteed you will lose it all. But invest in eternity and you are absolutely guaranteed to reap eternal reward. We trust Him with our eternal salvation. Do we trust Him with our material resources. Now this is what he said. And his home is heaven. His word is true. He knows what he's talking about. He will not steer us wrongly. Treasure in the heavens is the reward of those who are rich toward God. One way that they are rich toward God, but it's a significant way. And we should honor this approach, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Where is a directional term. The point is not what we invest, but here the point is where we invest it. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be. Focus your attention on material possessions and that is where your heart will be oriented, to the temporal realm. There's really no way around this. We need to make wealth. We must provide for ourselves. Gaining wealth and in fact enjoying it is all good. But if this is where my focus is, then I will be oriented to this realm. I won't be rich toward God. Invest in eternity and your heart will follow. It will be oriented to the eternal realm. So Jesus is counseling us here, if you give in a certain way, you will be helping and aiding your heart's orientation. Whatever we invest in, we're very concerned about. Wherever we invest, we're anxious to see how that investment develops. So, Jesus says, invest in being rich toward God, invest in storing up treasure in eternity, and your heart will follow. It will be a sanctifying discipline in your life. So this is my understanding and the principle that motivates my giving based on this passage. When we give of our wealth to advance the cause of Christ, when we give money in the name of Jesus out of love for others, God credits that gift to our eternal account. I don't know how he does that. I don't know what that's going to look like. I'm going to trust him there as well. He doesn't explain that to us, what that's going to mean in eternity. All that we know is that he is guaranteeing this is going to end well. Now the motivation needs to be right. I think there needs to be wisdom in how we do that and where we invest. But I think as we look at Scripture, it's not ultimately about finding the perfect investment. It's mostly about our own heart attitude and orientation. And when that attitude is right, when we are genuinely seeking to advance the cause of Christ and to aid others with our wealth, Jesus says that will end well. 
And I'm working in my life to believe Him. And to so be sanctified by His teaching. When we do what He is counseling us to do here, our energies and our interest will be oriented to eternity. And that's a good way to live life. Isn't Jesus kind of saying that's a smart way to live life? It's just wise. Apart from that, you're going to be living every day for what is temporal. So, do not be anxious about material possessions, but rather seek God's kingdom by investing in eternity and your heart will follow. That's the point. So I ask myself, in light of these ideas, I ask you, is your primary investment project in heaven or is it on earth? What financial investment motivates you the most? What are you concentrating your focus upon? If that investment is on earth, there is something true about you and you need to face it. I need to face it. My heart is oriented to what is temporal, what is fleeting, what is impermanent. And therefore, money is haunting my soul. And I love what's destroying me. If your heart is oriented toward investment in what is eternal and what is permanent, your heart follows and it is reflected in your bank account and in your soul's joy. If you're truly seeking God's kingdom and not seeking to establish your own, you are becoming increasingly free of anxiety about getting rich and anxiety about God providing for you and what drives and motivates and thrills your soul is the thought of joining with God in this world to accomplish good. Well, we enter in a giving time, and it's a time to consider these kinds of thinking, these kinds of teachings from Jesus, this type of transformational thinking. One of my motivations as we go through this and enter now into this fall, this three-year project, one of my motivations is a confidence that this project is best for the long-term health of our church and freedom to build up Jesus' church. That, that's what drives me and, and, and moves me. But another reason, and probably the larger reason, one that I'm excited about this project for, is, is that it gives us a distinct community-wide opportunity to invest in eternity. Now, we have that all the time as a church. But I'm excited about this project because it presses us to consider our heart attitude toward material possessions. And in that there is good. As this project, along with our regular giving, steers us to invest in eternity, it will serve to steer our orientation. It will discipline and direct our heart. And that's good. That's a good, good thing. So, as Jesus counsels us, as He teaches us, 
He says, pursue, become rich toward God. Don't look at material wealth as being that which defines you, that which gives you joy, that which settles your life. Pursue God in His kingdom. And secondly, invest treasure in heaven. Learn to put money into play such that it advances the cause of Christ, it builds other people up, it's an encouragement to the world in which you live. You're making it a better place. And you're investing it in eternal reward. As we begin to think that way, there's a sanctification that comes into our life. There's a work that God does in sanctification. There's a joy that is there. There's a capacity to get involved in what God is doing in this world. And I would long for every believer on this planet to enter into that realm. And so for those who bristle at the conversation of money, sit at Jesus' feet. Listen to Him teach Hear what he has to say about material wealth and you'll realize that this is a wonderful opportunity in our lives to serve Christ and to be changed from within. Don't ever run from it. Keep asking God, how should I prioritize my life? How should I relate to material possessions? Let's be rich toward God and invest treasure in heaven. I want my orientation to be there. If your orientation cannot be there because you're separated from Christ, there is not a sense of His forgiveness and of His presence in your life. I just hope that there's thirst created in you today when He says, it's my pleasure to give you my kingdom. He's not going to throw anybody into it. He's not going to hogtie you and chain you down, force you into His kingdom, but it is His pleasure to give His riches to sinners. Be reconciled to God, and you'll be on the path of becoming rich toward God. Let go of your own selfish kingdom. Loving what you love the way you love it, wanting what you want, and thinking you know how life will work. And submit to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And you will be rich toward God. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Father, for the instruction of our Savior. We thank you for the Word of God that records it and allows us to think differently and to invest our lives in a project that's bigger than this world. Oh, Father, how many people live the small, tiny, little world of accumulating, 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 spending, spending, and dying. We thank You that as Your followers, You are teaching us to give. You're teaching us that the material resources that we amass all belong to you and that our job is to move it around, to invest it and apply it and do things with it that advance your cause. And all of this, Father, we acknowledge changes our heart and it changes it for the good. Thank you for liberating us from the dominant and overpowering God of materialism. 
As that God continues to cling to our hearts, we pray that you'd weed it out, pull it out, uproot it, and kill it. Lord, that you would teach us the joy of investing in eternity. Thank you for the rebuke. Thank you for the counsel. Thank you for the promises. We rest in them. And we pray that you'd bring to saving faith those who are separated from Christ today and that you will use this instruction of Jesus to reorient and transform our relationship with material possessions and our focus on eternity. I ask that you'll do this work in us. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.